and now I know how to thatch a roof. I didn't, I, you know, and I've always kind of been a little curious about what they did exactly. And now that I've seen this, it's like, that is so obvious and simple. Why didn't I just, like, look at the thatch roof and go, oh, I know what they do there. That's, that's obvious. But. You need a lot of friends to do it, though. It, it does sound like it's going to be a big job. And, of course, all your neighbors... Uh, rice crop straw. Right. Well, no, wait, they didn't use rice crops. They used something else, some sort of reed that grew on the hillside. The pompous grass. Yeah, yeah. But still, you know, all the stuff that grew in the neighborhood, you, you know, so it's like it has to be coordinated because it's like you can't have two houses doing it at the same time. But mm-hmm. All right, all right. Starting to be, now I, so this is, this is a two-parter. So one part is kind of like how their community is kind of, you know, done, how their community junk is done. And, and a little bit about their government and their, uh, that's organized. And, and then it goes into the rice stuff, you know, raising the rice as well as, you know, harvesting the rice. And then it goes into thatching a roof and then kind of a summary of building materials that they use. So I thought that we were going to skip probably like, okay, we're going to read the stuff about big government versus the local community. And that we would probably not say much of anything in the podcast. But actually, I was really kind of amazed, like, oh, that's, that's kind of actually kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And, and so, um, granted, there were some things like, uh, don't forget that this is a, uh, a shogunate, you know, and it kind of sounded like if you do something icky, then, you know, the punishment is probably like you get your head lopped off. You know, I, I, <laughs> something like that. It's, it's, it's a, you know, you want to be a nice person because you, if you like your head. Uh, some, something, something like that. Um, the societies around the world have come a long way in the last several hundred years in terms of equality of their political system. So yeah. we shouldn't really compare their injustices by modern standards because they hadn't really invented all the things we take for granted with our politics today. Right. Part of it was that it sounded like um, for each of the official positions in a village, you were kind of born into it. And and once you're born into it, then your job, you know what your job is going to be. Yeah, it's just smacks of ranked nepotism. Right, but I was kind of thinking, like, what if you totally suck at this? And then it kind of got to that. Oh, yeah, the, the whole head is no longer on your shoulders thing. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Better better study hard. <laughs> the, connection, the connection between the political system and the social structure and rice is that states rice or the taxes were paid in rice. Yeah, you kind of get the uh, feeling like they, they really don't use a lot of money because it's like, you know, they grow most of their own food, they provide most of their own stuff, and so the, the idea of having money is like, uh, you know, what are you going to do with it? But but it's like the taxes every year are paid for it. And and, and well, in lieu of money, I mean, rice becomes a big deal. Right, right. Well, bags of Cheetos could be money in America because Frito-Lay have found a way to convert that into um, money. It's a similar kind of thing. And so basically rice is the, the number one thing. But it, I thought it was also interesting they kind of talked about, oh, and the merchants kind of don't pay taxes because they don't grow rice. You know, but only those who grow rice have to pay rice. So it's kind of like, you know, you, and, and I don't know, I kind of get the feeling, too, that it's like, oh, by the way, you live here, guess what? You're a rice grower. 
um, like you're born into it, and and now you will be growing rice forever. So um, it it didn't seem particularly smooth in a lot of ways. You're, what you're born into, that's kind of what you do. If you're born into being the mayor, uh, then then you, you know when you grow up, you're going to be the mayor, just like your dad. Um, and uh, uh, if, if if you are the the mayor's brother, then uh, there is a path where you could someday be mayor. If your brother sucks. <laughs> Reading through it, it seems like the author paints a picture of the time they have as being fairly happy and peaceful, and their needs are met. But through my modern eyes, it seems to be the most oppressive, terrible thing. I couldn't have stood it. Yeah, I mean, and I, I after reading here, I looked up very quickly if there are peasant revolts in Japan at this time, and the Edo period was marked at the beginning and the end by peasant revolts. So, so at the end of the Edo period, in particular, there's a pretty large peasant revolt. Well, it wasn't the end of the Edo period brought on by, like, oh, look, we meet these uh, people from Europe, and uh, they got things, and we like their things, and so we want to be like them, and then the Edo period kind of ended on that 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 note with, with a lot of um, awful. A lot of awful, yeah. yeah. So, um, but anyway, all right, so the, the first bit from big government versus the local community, in the early 1600s, Shogun Takugawa, I you know I should just stop trying to read their names, <laughs> decreed that villages should have 400 households, but in reality they range in size from 50 or fewer to over 1,000, and most lie in the 100 to 400 household range. This size is ideal for an autonomous community as it is large enough to allow pooling of labor and resources for large projects, yet small enough to enable good communication and coordination among the constituent parts. It is large enough to maintain and repair its local environment, but too small to do widespread environmental damage. So at five people per household, you're looking at 2,000 to what? 10,000 people. So there's 100 households, five, five people per that's, yeah. that's 500 people mm-hmm. in the village. Or it could be as households, so 5,000. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, these are small towns, you know, by our standards. Um, but I think that the small towns probably occur more frequently. And and then there's still the cities, which I'm, I imagine that later in the book we're going to get more into is the cities. Villagers like Shinichi can expect to surrender one-fourth to one-half of their yearly harvest to the government, to keep one-fourth for their own use, and to be able to sell the rest. So, um, we, in an earlier podcast, we were kind of talking about how it kind of seemed like they weren't allowed to eat the rice, but it's like, oh, no, no, no. Here it says, like, no, that's, it's cool, although it could possibly be regulated. Like, like, don't eat all of it, damn it, because a lot of that has to go and uh, be your taxes. Um, and then the next sentence, in times of bad harvest, tax levies may be reduced a nominal amount, but the difference must usually be made up from the farmer's household allotments. So they got to pick up the slack. What happens in a bounty year? Good question. It doesn't say. 
you know, so I imagine that it's the opposite. In the bounty year, you get more. Of course, you know, everybody has a bounty, <laughs> and uh, uh, good luck uh, selling it. You're not going to get much for it. Um, I, I thought it was interesting how it kind of went into this whole thing about farm manuals. So, like, the government kind of figured out that they have this stake in, like, like if everybody, like, grows buku rice, then they do great stuff. And and so then they sort of put together these farm manuals, which are just packed to the gills with, like, um, uh, a collective uh, of information from all kinds of different farmers on, like, hey, here's a cool trick that worked for me. Mm-hmm. And um, they also mentioned that their literacy rate was about 60%. Right. Yeah. And um, and it has to do with, like, you know, part of what that rice gets you is it gets these schools in all the communities. So, um, uh, yeah, I thought that was something worth noting. It says that the government has an interest in improving the farm productivity. First of all, they do, they want their rice tax, of course, but it tries to put the most reliable information in the hands of who can use it. And so having smart farmers means... Right. Having literate farmers means that when you pump out information about, you know, hey, here's how you can uh, improve productivity so that we, the um, government or the emperor, can be richer, uh, then they can actually implement the ideas that you decree or that you send down or whatever. Mm-hmm. Not a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Kind of sounds a little bit like some awesome website that might be around today. Mm-hmm. All right, let's see. Then it starts talking about, oh, and then they got this cool thing, which, which was, um, all right, the shogunate has instituted a policy of mutual aid and responsibility called the Go-Nen-Gumi, five-person group, which acts as a political and social unit between the household and the village. So basically what they've got is like there's these subgroups of five households. So these five households are kind of like this is like your cousin household. This is your neighborhood. And granted, um, you know, for a lot of folks, they kind of hate their neighbors. They're like bitter enemies of their neighbors. But I, I don't know, maybe that's like not allowed or something. But so you'd have uh, these five households, and they would somehow work collaboratively and help each other um, a bit. And and it's like I'm kind of curious, like uh, how that was managed. But it does seem like you know then it goes up a, a notch to where you've got like your three people for each village that are picked out, each one with a, a rough idea of what they do. I don't know. I guess if you're not getting along inside of your little subgroup, then um, a higher up will like come down and say, "You there, stop being a dick," <laughs> and and smooth things out that way. Is my guess. I mean, I wasn't there. I didn't. I don't really know. They also organized all the young men into young men's associations that carried out various municipal tasks as firefighters, festival organizers, and other activities. I like it. Yeah, you know, and it talked about once you get married, you're kind of, you don't mess with that anymore. You know, you've got other things to do, um, which I kind of thought was like, well, wait a minute, what? (laughs) Well, it's like instead of having gangs, you know, of young men. Oh, productive young young men organizing. Working together for the greater good (laughs) rather than, you know, whatever. (laughs) I, I once heard something about Cuba 
in that um, it's like they don't have much trouble in that space, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that it's like uh, as a teenager. So like normally that's when teenagers teenagers get into trouble. But what they do is is that um, every day is kind of jam packed with stuff for every teenager in Cuba. You know, and it's like they get up the crack of dawn and they've just got a, a, a schedule that they're doing with everybody else, and then they're kept busy until like nine or ten at night. They just don't have time to get up to anything, <laughs> you know? And and granted, a lot of it is kind of like scheduled stuff, like they've set up stuff that's cooler than going and doing something else. And so it's like, uh, apparently it's, it's I've heard rumors, I, I've never been to Cuba, that it's, it's awesome being a teenager in Cuba because they kind of like, you know, do so much cool stuff for you. And then this whole section is capped off with a dismal summary talking about government decrees handed down uh, vertical authoritarian power axis backed with the implicit threat of force and the peasants while seldom interfered with have no real fundamental rights yeah so it's like well this is all great everyone's happy have what they need until they don't like it anymore and then you get bopped on the head or your head removed. Well, and, but at the same time, I mean, so yeah, there's that. There is that, which sucks. On, on the other hand, it kind of sounds like there's almost no interaction with the government. Right. Mm-hmm. It, it, it sounds like you're pretty much, I mean, first of all, on your own piece of land, you're pretty autonomous. I mean, you're pretty self-sufficient. Um, you're not really needing a lot from the outside. And then it's like, then the side of the community is such that it's like really you know you could get your community could get forgotten and if it got forgotten then it's like as long as you pay your taxes though well that's true it's, it, they probably won't forget to come and get those taxes <laughs> if you have a small enough community that it's like the tax guy might be like you know I don't feel like going up on that mountain to go get those taxes <laughs> that's just like a hike and shit <laughs> I don't want to go yeah but it says that the government rule is largely hands off Right. So, like, when they're going to be oppressing, it's like maybe once every 20 years they think about, hey, you know what would be fun is to go and oppress that little village over there. <laughs> Let's go rain on their parade. Yeah. You know, so, it, yeah, so it's, it's a little bit like, yeah, they're total bastards. And at the same time, you really don't hear from them very often. So kind of hard to get too upset. It kind of sounds like... Uh, modern Republican Party ideals here in America today. Small, authoritarian, repressive government, hands-off style. Still pay your taxes, but otherwise... Not that much. <laughs> yeah. Freedom! <laughs> yeah. Um, so now, when it, you know, you're saying Republican, whenever I hear Republican or Democrat, I just start to, to get, yeah, like, glassy-eyed, and I start thinking to myself, like, there, I mean, it, it, you know, politics, it's just that big scary circus made uh, dominantly out of you know freaky clowns that are designed to distract you from what's really going on and so yeah exactly. uh, Democrats and Republicans like um, yeah you, if, you, if you pay attention to them then yeah it's like a tar baby you, you'll be drawn in for life you can't get away from it and and it's like uh, and then once you're paying attention to them then you can't pay attention to anything real that's going on yeah. I mean if you you, you know you get all fired up and everything and angry. It's a drama. It's like a it's like an ongoing 
doing soap opera, you know. And and um, I'm sorry, they're they're you know the, the whoever is president du jour, they're they're just a puppet for somebody else. Um, and you know that gets into such a complicated, stomach achy place. Um, totally. Whereas at the same time, I kind of feel like when you start to explore permaculture and homesteading, then it's kind of like you can create your own little utopia somewhere and in in a big way end up sort of kind of a little bit forgotten. And and so a lot of that crazy ass shit that goes on ends up kind of sort of not applying to you. And um, so you're kind of out in the woods, kind of semi-forgotten, and and you're going on with your day-to-day stuff. And um, yeah, I I, kind of think that is a, a path. I think. And, I mean, that's one of the draws that uh, uh, permaculture and homesteading has for me is, is the idea of, like, I can, I can ignore the scary circus. I don't have to, like, go and, I mean, because once I start watching any of that or learning about it or reading about it, then I just get a big stomach ache and I'm like, I'm going to go fix it. I gotta stand up and shake my fist at the bad guys. There's still a certain amount of that that you have to deal with on the local level, right? With we're talking about water rights and zoning, and you can't. Well, okay, like like let's say let's say you build a pond, and you're in a place where it, water rights are wonky. You you built it by accident. Then, well, Not then, for your enjoyment, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah you, you, you kind of have a vague there are idea. There ways to get around yeah, your thing. And plus, the other thing is, like, what if you live in a county or whatever where it's like they just don't have the staff? The Department of Making You Sad is underfunded and understaffed, and, and really there's, like, smart. one guy there, and he's in charge of eight different departments making you sad. And if he's smart enough, he knows what you're doing is right, and then he should just look the other way, most likely. Well, <laughs> more like he kind of doesn't... You you know, he, he's, he just doesn't have the time to go out there and look, and he doesn't have the time to deal with it. I mean, he's just overwhelmed with the day-to-day paperwork, and it's like, and plus it's a part-time job to do, to manage eight different departments, and I mean, it's just, it's just, uh, there's just, you can't do it. You can't, do it. so then it's kind of like, and, and there's so much territory to cover, and it's kind of like, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, gotta let it go. Right. Now, you know, there's a downside to that, too, and that is that when you're Neighbors start, you know, up, your uphill neighbors start pouring pollutants into the into the soil, and it washes down to your place. Then it's kind of like you want the department of making you sad to go make that guy sad, but he's like, yeah, that would be great if we had the manpower for that, but we don't. Yeah, so it's this double-edged sword kind of thing. All right, so. <clears throat> Uh, the book, uh, oh, then it turns into like, like this picture book. I mean, and, and the the information is amazing, but it is it is something that is like, here, pod people, take a look at this picture. Oh, right, you can't see it. <laughs> so um, it's like, but I, I as I'm reading this stuff about rice cultivation, I'm thinking about Fukuoka. And by the way, uh, we're just a couple of weeks away from what would be Fukuoka. 100th birthday. All right. Yeah. So uh, that's that's coming right up if you were still alive and stuff, you know. But um, I, but I'm thinking about like this is this is like the old way how they how they you know raised rice and there 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 are elements of polyculture to it although you know dominantly it's a lot of um, 
you know, a lot of rice. Rice, 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 rice. Although in between the rice, there are some other things going on. Yep. And and so it is. There's a little bit of polyculture with the rice, but it's still pretty much a monocrop. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of quick notes as I was going along. <clears throat> One is is that they talked about swallows uh, feeding on the mosquitoes and other flying insects. That's the diverse the diverse wetland that is created. And um, which I thought was always a good point. I always kind of think that you know uh, keeping a lot of swallows around is a good idea. I, I somebody I remember somebody was like um, telling me about how the damn flies are driving them nuts at their house. And then I you know so I'm I'm visiting with them a little bit and like ten minutes later the conversation was is like yeah I had a bunch of fucking swallows everywhere and I went and killed them all. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but no connection between one and the other. You know, they haven't haven't quite. Yeah, you see, kill those swallows, and now you have a lot of flies. I wonder if there's a connection, dude. Um, <clears throat> yeah, they were crapping on everything, but I got rid of them. Good for you. Environmental services. Yeah, yeah, and, and they were working hard for you, and uh, yeah, you, you could just find a way to like mask the poop streaked, uh, you know, streaking down the side of your house. Um, find a find a way to deal with it. Um, one other quick note that I had in here, and they got this picture is showing like, okay, here's what the rice paddy looks like, and and here they got a raised place, and this is where they plant the soybeans next to the rice, and and stuff like that. And then they get this little note here where they've got like this little kind of like a ditch-looking thing, and uh, the ditch is like half full, and then there's something at the bottom of the ditch, and you can't make out what it is. Well, there's a note pointing at it, and it says, during the late summer, warm water and irrigation ditches can be used to soak flax and hemp stocks to the point of decomposition so the useful fibers can be easily separated out. So I thought that was a thing I had never considered. So you just bundle them up, throw them into the ditches, and then fish them out later, who knows how much longer, and they've kind of semi-rotted, and so now it's easy to pull the, the fiber strands out. Clever. It starts, uh, so it talks about growing all of the, um, you know, from seeds to seedlings, transplanting and, um, you know, the, the, the water stuff and all these different things um, and uh, how the trees are going to be planted on berms in between the rice paddies. And then it goes into harvest. And so this is something where you can watch Fukuoka doing the harvest too as the same kind of thing. So you've got this tool that looks, it's, it's uh, some people call it a comma, um, and and it's the tool that they use for harvesting it, and then you bundle them up, and then you can uh, then you dry the bunches, um, uh, so that way the uh, and I'm not sure this is 20 days. You dry it for about 20 days, and then um, and I wonder if that's like one of the things when you're drying it that we hear a lot about the fermentation, which is the step that's missing from modern cultivation. So as during that 20 days, as it's drying, it ferments a little bit. And it's that fermentation that we don't have in our modern grains that kind of makes us... Yeah, Salatin talks about that. Holzer talks about it. Salatin talks about it. I think a lot of people are, are now uh, talking about that. I, I do think it's pretty important. Then it goes into threshing the rice, which I thought was interesting. Um, you know, they, you can either flail it or you can um, heckle it. And um, uh, then, and then there's holing, winnowing, 
Um, and they and it goes into a lot of pictures and details and and well not, I shouldn't say pictures drawings drawings and details um, and all the different techniques for threshing hulling and winnowing and the different kinds of flails and the different kinds of tools they use um, the different ways that they had for hulling uh, and and uh, and winnowing they had like like some small time operations of winnowing which is just a basket and a little help from the wind mm-hmm. versus uh, um, gravity-powered contraptions where you pour it into the top and it pours down or, or hand-crank things. Mm-hmm. I love the tool called the thousand-toothed heckler. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like uh, if you're a comic, that might not be what you want in the audience. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a great name for a band. <laughs> Scary, psychedelic rock band. Thousand-toothed heckler. So I'm trying to hold the recording contraption and turn pages. So then it gets into this whole big hand-drawn... Where we talk, where it talks about polishing, turning brown, brown rice into white rice, and then further processing. Right. Yeah, this page, this page has got some neat contraptions on it. Mm-hmm. How you can make a rice pounder out of some simple levers, a grinding wheel... Uh, all kinds of fun gadgets lashed together out of sticks. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I kind of, um, instead of, if you go to the next page where I, I skip your page, and then it they, they does talk about the brown rice. That's true. And then, and then if you polish it, and then he's got like little shiny lines mm-hmm. coming off of the rice to show, it's now polished. <laughs> it's like gold, but it's white. Um, and so, so basically it says brown rice, highly nutritious, most commonly eaten form in rural communities. But if you polish it, then you have white rice used to pay taxes. Easily marketable, considered the most delicious. And then it says in parentheses, but city dwellers who eat it exclusively can suffer from a vitamin D deficiency their brown rice eating rural brethren rarely get. So, you know, note, just note, brown rice might be better. Now, I've heard that um, white rice keeps a really long time, and brown rice, not so much. That that might have something to do with why they do it, why they polish it, right? Right. That would be my guess. That would be my guess. Um, And uh, this this two-page massive hand-drawn drawing um, goes into a lot of detail of all the different kinds of things that rice is used for. And it's like, and then after you're done having it being, um, you know, for footwear, rope, or whatever, then you might send it off to the compost pile, or you might use it for fuel. And and uh, so anyway, it's, it's this whole super mega system. Rice is everything to everyone yeah, kind of thing. Easily shows you why the heck they went to so much trouble to raise the stuff. And it sums it up by saying a finely integrated web of processes that result in the full utilization of every byproduct, the zero waste ideal in reality. It's the super grain Mm -hmm. in Japan. Then we get into thatching a roof. Um, While in some regions, farmhouse roofs may commonly be made of boards, shingles, or bark, by far most are made of thatch 
thatch roofs can be easily patched, but will require replacement every 20 years or so. This large undertaking involves the entire community and is a prime example of communal cooperation. And and by communal, I'm I'm guessing that part of it is is like this bossiness thing. It's like if if you don't do what you're told, then the the guy with the sword shows up and persuades you with the ultimate form of persuasion. I don't know if they just like, oh, we're gonna scratch your arm a little bit or cut off a pinky. I, it, you know, I just seem to have this vague memory, maybe from really bad TV shows from 20 years ago. Pretty much all they did is like lopped off your head. Like, he, if you have to bother the um, samurai guy with your problems, he's pretty much set on taking somebody's head. <laughs> One, okay, you guys, two of you have a problem. Whose head am I taking off? Let's have a conversation to decide which head's coming off. <laughs> Because, you know, I could use the practice. You, I could use the aerobic exercise that comes with it. All right, so thatching a roof. Um, they're gathering the material, which is that ditch reed, which grows two to two and a half meters tall in one growing season. So that's six to seven and a half feet tall. <clears throat> so, you know, pretty long reed. And then they dry it. They've got a couple different ways of drying it. Um, and then they and then they're laying it down and the first ones the first little bits they lay down on the lower edge of the roof and they kinda they kinda sew it onto the roof. They kind of have this this huge needle and they got this ropey stuff that they've made out of hemp and and then they kind of sew it to the roof. Uh, they just lay it down and, and kind of weave it to the roof. And then they put down another layer and, and kind of sew it on, and et cetera. And then it, it kind of shows the like the layers coming together, and it's I don't know. I think it's it's really fascinating how it all. And it seems like that would make an incredibly strong and attractive roof. Um, I, I like it. Mhm. Yep. And then they trim it. I liked this part where they comb comb the reeds with a heavy heavy comb, and then they give it a haircut. <laughs> and make it look tidy. <laughs> tidy. And and then um, the ridge is interesting. It's like um, there's a lot of different ways to do the ridge where the the sewing kind of meets at the top finally. And um, uh, some people plant irises on top. Yeah, <laughs> but now that one they said that some of these techniques last a really long time, and some of them need to be replaced. Like the ridge tops need to be replaced regularly. Um, so I imagine that the uh, that the iris are one that don't last so long because then you got kind of like a little little bit of composty action going on on your rooftop there. Yes, but it was good luck, it says. Oh. Irises on your ridge cap. That's totally worth it then. <laughs> so, and then finally, it's got this this huge table uh, at the at the end of this section, um, showing the different building materials: wood, bamboo, mud and clay, <clears throat> plaster, rush, thatch, hemp and straw, and paper, um, and then all kinds of different stuff about um, you know what it's typically used for. 
how available is it? Um, you know, how well does it scale? How durable is it? Um, byproducts, uh, the environmental impact, uh, how much it costs, the renewability of it. Things like anyway, it's like I, you could. I, I just found myself like you know going over this table and looking at all the little details and all the little. Fortunately, this isn't one where he's written it in by hand in his uh, scrawly font. This is like actually a um, you know. A, a, a public, a, a, a proper font for a book, kind of a thing. Um, and I thought it was curious that there's no mention of stone. Ooh, good call. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, but stones are heavy. Who wants to build a house out of rock? Well, they build it out of this nice, easy, lightweight material. Well, there's, you know, they, they built. There's, there's other things we're going to build out of stone, like bridges and stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, anyway, so that ends this section. You guys got anything else? No. All right. If you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com, where we talk about how to build a thatch roof, homesteading and permaculture all the time.